This is Jim Duncan with Nest Realty and Sweat the Details. This week, Jonathan Keith and I were joined by Jordy Yeager. Jordy is spearheading the Mapping Charlottesville and now Mapping Albemarle projects, which are seeking to catalog and map the racist covenants in the Charlottesville and Albemarle area. These covenants and the systemic methods to enact them after they became illegal have shaped the Charlottesville and Albemarle area, but also how our country was developed and grew. The effects of these covenants continue to be seen and felt today. We hope you find this conversation as interesting and enlightening as we did. Hey, everybody. Jim Duncan with Nest Realty and Sweaty Details. Uh, I'm sitting here with my partner, Keith Davis and Jonathan Kaufman. And we have a guest this week, Jordy Yeager. Um, Jordy, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're doing. Sure. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me this week. Um, I am a career journalist. I've been a journalist for the last 14, 15 years. Grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia, and um, spent about seven years covering uh, Washington, D.C., the federal government. Uh, worked for newspapers up there. And about seven years ago, I moved back to Charlottesville to focus on stories I felt like were either falling through the cracks or not being told or not being told right. Um, and so largely, my work tends to focus on issues of racial and economic equity. Uh, and I spend anywhere from about six to 18 months working on single stories. So tend to do long form, uh, multimodal narrative driven stories, audio written, uh, now film. Um, and uh, I'm also a fellow at the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center here in Charlottesville. Uh, is home of the uh, the first black school uh, coming out of uh, this end of the Civil War and is now uh, the only institute for black history and culture. Um, and I serve uh, as a fellow under Dr. Andrea Douglas. Very cool. So, Jordy, one of the, you know, you said you spend six to 18 months on a project, and one of the ones you've been working on for more than 18 months now um, is kind of the project that brought us all together, which is termed Mapping Charlottesville or Mapping Seaville. Tell everybody a little bit about what Mapping Seaville is and kind of just the, let, let's stay away from kind of the purpose of it long term right now, but just the actual facts of how you, how you guys are doing the work and, and what you all are trying to uncover. Sure. No, it's um, so mapping Seville is uh, is our attempt to explain and unpack uh, how racism showed up in housing policies here in Charlottesville and Albemarle County. So Charlottesville is a city is about 10, 10.2 square miles. Uh, the surrounding county is about 750 square miles or so. Um, so it's fairly significant difference um, just to give people kind of a perspective of the city of Charlottesville is in the center of the county. Um, but we're looking at both. Uh, so so quite often there's a distinction made, but we, you know, we go shopping out in the county and we come back to the city. So they, they operate pretty seamlessly in that regard. Um, and what we're doing is looking at, we never got a redlining map. So uh, different cities throughout all of uh, Virginia got redlined. Um, they, you know, Richmond, Norfolk, Roanoke, uh, even Lynchburg uh, got redlining maps. And so those maps provide us with a historical uh, look back and a, a blueprint or a template as to understand how racist housing policies got enacted in those cities. Jordy, um, can, I, can I ask a question real quick, just for clarification for people listening? We, we hear the term redlining mm -hmm. and you say we didn't get redlining maps. Mm -hmm. Who, who yeah. So when you're talking about the redlining maps, there, who initiated them? What you know, in terms of the formal maps, where did those come from, and when did that initiate? Sure. So redlining as a practice got enacted uh, coming out of the Great Depression by the Homeowners Loan Corporation, uh, which was the federal government's uh, response to trying to measure risk uh, of uh, of loans, of mortgages to homeowners. And so what the Homeowners Loan Corporation, or Hulk for short, did was drop maps of every major city throughout America, 
Uh, and in those maps, they shaded neighborhoods, different colors. So green was the best, and that meant that there was a very low risk of that loan or that mortgage being defaulted on uh, by the the lend or by the person taking it to the bank. Um, whereas the lowest ranking uh, was red. And that was a, or hazardous is what they deemed it. So that was a very high risk for uh, that loan defaulting. And uh, almost uniformly throughout the whole country, every city, uh, all of the areas that were shaded red were predominantly black and African-American. Um, and so this determined, uh, you know, this made it possible for 90, I think 9% of the loans that got issued with federal, with FHA backing uh, to be issued to white homeowners and prospective homeowners uh, during that, coming out of the worst economic collapse in uh, in uh, 20th century. So um, this is why we see the dearth in homeownership between white and black uh, homeowners in, in America is in part, uh, in large part because of redlining. Um, so that is a federal practice, right? That is different from racist covenants, which are a private practice. Now, quite often those two would overlap. A racist covenant is a clause in a in a property deed that says the equivalent of um, no one shall own or occupy this home other than people of Caucasian race, uh, right? And that varies depending on region, depending on who they're discriminating against. But right. in large part, that is you know roughly what they say. Um, now, those are privately binding and they run with the land oftentimes. Uh, so that means that as a private home buyer and seller, uh, we're passing that deed and that covenant off to each other. Now, quite often often in order to secure a loan that is federally backed during that time period, during the 1920s, 30s, 40s, um, they required covenants or racial uh, restrictions to be put into place in the deeds in order to secure that loan from the federal government. So sometimes they would overlap, but redlining as a practice did not occur in my hometown of Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, as it did in Richmond and bigger cities. Um, and so that's the distinction there. Does that make sense? Or yeah. Yeah, no, I just I want to make sure everybody kind of understood that, that when we're talking about redlining, this is not just a group of private individuals getting together. Correct. The actual act of redlining was a government sponsored activity. This Correct. was a and these were formal maps, which we can go back and trace and pull up from all the other cities. Correct. Right. Mapping inequality is a project out of the University of Richmond. Their um, their digital scholars program there has done a tremendous job of overlaying those maps, those uh, you know 1930, 1940 maps, to current day cities. So you can look up every city in America and see where and what neighborhoods got uh, different gradations based on the homeowners loan corporation, the federal programs assessments. Right. So, so Charlottesville does not have any of the the redlining maps were never drawn for our city, and it doesn't mean that the racial inequality didn't exist. It just means it wasn't a, a governmental systemic, you know, systematic policy. So, so what took place then in cities like Charlottesville? Where, where did the, how did this play out? And that is what we're unpacking. So we know that covenants existed. And as a journalist, I first came across them. I was talking to a source and they mentioned they had one in their deed. Um, and so it sent me to the courthouse and I said, OK, where else might they be? And so I started looking in the white neighborhoods. And sure enough, they were uh, more and more that I was finding. And so uh, I took that to uh, Dr. Andrea Douglas here at the Jefferson School African-American Heritage Center. And I said, let's try to create a uniform approach to really comprehensively look at every single property 
record from uh, 1888 when the city incorporates to 1968 when the Fair Housing Act gets passed. Um, and so we signed uh, memorandums of understanding with the city and county clerks and we got access to their deeds. Um, and that is where the journey began in terms of uh, really trying to grasp how wide and how deep uh, these covenants were used. And, and uh, sorry, go ahead, Jim. No, I mean, just to be clear, I mean, these, these are no longer enforceable, but they are still on the records as something that, you know, you know as you said, runs with the land, and they're still there in a lot of cases. So Correct. when you, yeah. so how widespread is it? I mean, like, use the city of Charlottesville, and have you mapped all, you know, most of the city, all of the city? And, and the second part is, what percentage, if you will, have some degree of racist covenants that you know, used to be you know, in practice and enforceable? Sure. So we we processed roughly about 152,000 pages of property records, um, and out of those 152,000 pages, uh, we were able to pull out 2,021 deeds with racist covenants in them. And that's just in the city, not the county. So that's just Charlottesville City. Um, now, out of those 2,021, we are only about 600 uh, deeds into mapping those. Um, so we're going chronologically. We've mapped about from 1903 to 19. 40 at this point, um, but uh, and we haven't looked at how many deeds uh, in, in total there are. So as far as the percentage, uh, we can't tell you. But based on the map, you know, that map is get we're, we're shading them all in red, the ones that have covenants, and that map is getting redder and redder. Um, and whole neighborhoods are swathed in red uh, by 1940. Um, and of course, the 40s are really, you know, as the numbers tell you, if we've only mapped 600 deeds up to 1940, right, the rest of those 1400 take place in 1940, 1950. That's like the, the real big boom in terms of uh, not only construction, but also implementation of racial restrictions. Um, and so as a percentage, uh, it's, it's going to be huge. Um, you know, we know that the county's records, because of process of annexation, the city as it exists now used to be a lot smaller and it's taken county land to become the size that of the city it is today and in that process a lot of those older records are still in the county's deed books and so we're going to be finding more city records in the county uh, as we process those as well so jordy i, I want to get to annexation i want to talk about utilities and other things that are that absolutely relate to the way and this is not a charlottesville problem this is an urban development problem in the south but to go back to these number of properties are you finding that the restrictions tend to be placed when homes are built as new construction? Or was it simply during Jim Crow South, these just started popping up, you know, in resale certificates as well? People were adding them at the time of a resale or how did, when did they get added? What's the, what's the process for that? Do we know? Both. Um, and so most often it's in the creation of new developments. And so okay. um, the first one we have record of, I think, is 1893, which it gets inserted into the deeds, but then the actual construction and the development occurs in 1897. And that's in our current Martha Jefferson Locust Grove neighborhood. It's a group of white men that collectively form a improvement company, as they were called, um, and they build uh, 140 parcels out of what was a former plantation. It was a farm. Um, and that plantation enslaved uh, black people and they then bought that plantation broke it up into 140 parcels inserted these racist covenants into each deed uh, for those 140 uh, that, that uh, they sold and and then built I think 11 houses on spec uh, just to entice people to come live there um, so, we, so we didn't have we didn't have HOAs back in the 1800s so this is this is the earliest attempt to kind of create some form of 
unified strategy of home ownership. That this is land developers who say, we're trying to develop this all white neighborhood and they put it in place as a marketing tool. Correct. Right. And then yeah, exactly. Exactly. So this is to entice federal uh, banks as well as, uh, you know, local banks as well. And this is occurring all throughout the country. Right. So, you know, St. Paul and the Twin Cities, they have them. Uh, Austin, Texas, they have them. Portland, Oregon, they have them. Rochester, New York, they have them. This is not unique to Charlottesville. Of course, Charlottesville being, you know, kind of one of the uh, earlier uh, kind of grounds of racism and, and racial uh, implementation on different systematic levels, just because of its history, is one of the earlier cases. But it's not the earliest by any means so um so yeah this is uh this is very much happening on that level but it's also happening within resales right so people are looking at these new developments and saying huh maybe we should do that too um and you know i don't know if we want to dive into this but we as a city uh implemented a whole racist segregation ordinance in 1912 um so 1910 baltimore passes its whole racist segregation ordinance saying that if you're white you cannot buy a home in a black neighborhood if you're black you cannot buy a home in a white neighborhood um, I think it's 1911, Richmond passes its, and then 1912, we pass ours. And these are all throughout the South, right? Greensboro, Charleston, uh, Birmingham, uh, Louisville. Um, and then by 1917, the one in Louisville actually gets challenged and brought to the U.S. Supreme Court. And that's where the Buchanan v. Worley decision comes out and says, this is unconstitutional. You cannot segregate zoning based along racial lines. And so then the conversation shifts and they say, okay, we're going to go back to the private covenants. The, co the covenants never stop, by the way. So those are all being implemented and built and inserted into deeds all throughout 1912, 1915. Um, but then after that Supreme Court decision, the onus goes back to private sales, right? That that's how you are going to segregate based on race. Um, while also experimenting in Atlanta, experimenting in Birmingham and New Orleans with uh, segregation ordinances that don't on their surface violate the Supreme Court decision because they're not explicitly racist, but they are in practice, right? So then you get the creation of R1 or R2. And R1 is is explicitly laid out, I think, in Atlanta's zoning in, in the 1920s as being white, right? R2 is black, right? So these are, these are very thinly veiled and coded uh, ways to try to get at racist zoning, but without violating the constitutional uh, amendment. Wait, so what we think of as zoning that, that has to do with density today was entirely designed to identify the racial makeup of neighborhoods? 100%. And and not only just in, in density, but also like in Charleston, it's historic preservation, right? That is coming out of their, you know, their racist segregation ordinance gets uh, swept off the books. And so they, in 1920, start to preserve the historic fabric of the Charleston downtown area, right? But that is, I mean, there are transcripts of the um, of, of the minutes before the local legislative body that are describing this as being, you know, a, uh, a desire to keep the slums out to keep the disease of the undesirables away, um, right? This is the language that they're using at that time. Um, very much meaning black people and, and of course immigrants as well. Wow, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with the whole, cause you know, I look at R1 as single family zoning and R2 right. is, you know, where you can have two, two units on one property. I'd, I've never looked at it through the lens of what they originally intended to be used for. Or at least um, was born, right. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, you know, we can we can talk post, as you say, you know, this is all unconstitutional, right? These racist covenants are no longer binding any longer. So right. 1948, another Supreme Court decision says uh, you cannot, you know, federally, you cannot do these. Um, we see them in deeds through the 1950s, 1960s. Um, but 
they're not enforceable on a federal level, right? So if somebody were to challenge them, they wouldn't be found, found valid. Um, but that being said, you don't see the disappearance really until 1968 with the Fair Housing Act. And then the onus goes back to zoning. So this whole you know R1 single family zoning, who can afford to buy a single family house with mandatory setbacks, with, uh, you know, with, with all of these um, other covenants that are being attached to single family homes of a minimum lot price, right? Or a minimum structure uh, and building size, right? minimum size. Like all of these things are based on, um, you know, on appearance is how they look, but they're also based on how, who can afford that. It's the right. people who have build, been building generational wealth over the last 50 years where you have direct federal involvement in making sure that certain people have financial generational wealth. Um, and we can talk about that's what this project is looking at is how wealth is accumulated during this first part of the 20th century uh, intentionally for white families and while it's being neglected and taken away from black families um, systematically not just yeah. on individual, you know, private to private sort of basis. So, Jordy, you touched on this earlier, and, and, and I think a lot of our listeners who are out of state don't necessarily understand Virginia's structure. Um, we have cities and we have counties, as do most states, except our cities are truly independent municipalities. They are not, city of Charlottesville is not part of Albemarle County, even though it's 100% included within the confines of geographically within Albemarle County. Um, cities grew, cities needed to take on or wanted to take on more residents, wanted to take on higher density. The counties tended to be rural. And so cities like Charlottesville, cities like Richmond would annex land, right? But with that becoming part of a city, you had to provide services to the residents of, you know, within the city. So the city of Charlottesville was required to provide water, sewer, electricity, other things. So talk about how annexation then control was controlled by the racial makeup. Because sure. we certainly see that as well. Yeah, no, for sure. That's a great point. I think um, so. One of the other things we became aware of when we were starting this project was uh, that looking at the map of covenants would be very interesting, right? There's a lot of things you can correlate to that. Um, just recently, there's I think an NPR study that looked at uh, tree canopy and heat indexes yep. as it correlates to, to redlining, right? Um, of course, we didn't get the redlining map, so this racist covenant map will be our template to help understand how those things are correlatory. Um, but first and foremost, what we were interested in is saying can we get a picture of how investments and neglect was uh, was was had on infrastructure so water lines sewer lines paved streets um, trees getting planted uh, electric lines telephone lines all of these things at the time they had to be petitioned for and so there's a paper trail there's a record of all of these petitions coming from different neighborhoods saying we would like a paved street we would like a water line um, you know the city's grid as as far as municipal water supply uh, is not fully built it's running from a reservoir and then you have to tack on and tack on and tack on um, and all of that is by petition. And so anecdotally from black residents, we knew that they were getting denied or significantly delayed their petitions for basic quality of life, water, sewer, um, at a rate that was far disparate from what white residents and white neighborhoods were getting. But we wanted, again, to get our whole arms around what all of the petitions said, what all of their outcomes were. And so we digitized all of city council minutes. And we started partnering with a professor at the University of Virginia Architecture School, Barbara Brown Wilson, um, who every semester has a different graduate level class that takes on five-year increments of these infrastructure investments and petitions and says, who made them? What happened to them? How much money was allocated to them? And slowly, five years plus five years plus five years, we can start to get a picture of how water lines, how sewer lines, how all of these things came about. 
not only sequentially and chronologically, but geographically, because we can tag them with spatial IDs so we can show them in correlation to the racist covenants that existed and where people were being prevented and, and, and supported to live. Um, and from there, uh, what do you think happens to your home's value if you get a water line or a sewer line in your neighborhood? Um, so we have land tax records, we have assessments, we have surveys that will tell that story as well. And then we can, of course, adjust for other qualifying factors, inflation, uh, you know, the automobile, all of these things can be adjusted for. Um, but then looking at, okay, this is how wealth is accumulated. This is why grandfather was able to buy a house in this neighborhood that was restricted by race and then take a reverse mortgage and send junior to college. Or, you know, these are, these are how educational legacies of healthcare uh, outcomes of, you know, every life outcome has a direct correlatory to where you live. And so why do we live where we live? Well, it turns out it's a lot more complicated. So, so the infrastructure stuff is, 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 is a fascinating turn on how we look at, you know, how, how areas have developed and have grown. And this is not, again, this is not just Charlotte, Virginia. This is, you know, throughout the U.S., uh, are there any other projects out there that are doing similar work to what you're doing with respect to mapping deeds and mapping covenants and restrictions, you know, uh, that, that you can then say, well, these guys in you know, Minneapolis are doing are doing this or in Phoenix are doing this. And then, again, the second part of my question, how do we again, this is a, it could be a 14 part podcast, but how do we solve for the yeah. pre previous evils? Yeah, two, two great questions. So yeah, one, first and foremost, I, we couldn't do this without mapping segregation uh, and mapping prejudice. So those are projects run out of Washington, D.C. and then uh, Minneapolis. Um, and they really have you know led the way in terms of how do you inventory all of a city's racist restrictions through property deeds. Um, and, and specifically mapping prejudice uh, in Minneapolis has, uh, has led us into this crowdsourcing method. So one of the things that we knew we needed to do uh, was not computerize everything. We needed uh, real people in our neighborhoods to go through these deeds um, as much as possible. And so we started giving talks. We, we've gone into schools. Um, we've talked to about 2,500 people at this point, I think, at last count. And these are groups of 20, 30 church groups, neighborhood associations. Um, you know, anybody that is interested in this history will walk them through it and then say, this is what you can do about it. This is the, part of rectifying this history with the present is learning it, of like interacting with it, seeing this mundane language of who's buying and who's selling, and then, whoa, no one other than sh the person of the Caucasian race shall owner occupy this home, um, that that's my home, that that's where I live today. So that's part of it, is that education. Jordy, Jordy, how many, you, you're doing this through crowdsourcing. You've got over 20, you know, 2,021 deeds that have been recorded that you guys have found. How many people have been involved in this project thus far? It's a good question. I went through that this morning. Um, we have at least 500 people that have logged a single deed and more than 250 people separate from that that have logged multiple deeds. That's um, awesome. And, and so that's over the course of about uh, 15 months, I think, okay. we've been up and running. Okay. And, and in terms of, of just what the next step is, so if I am a resident, I own property, and it is determined that I've got a racial covenant in my deed, is there a is there a clear process in Virginia that any per, any homeowner can go and have this removed? Is there expense to it? Is there what's what's the process on that? It was a little bit 
complicated up until last year. So our General Assembly uh, passed and the governor signed into law uh, HB 788, I believe. And this allows a very streamlined and free cost cost effective way to take out these covenants from deeds. Up until yeah. then, it was, yeah, it involved a transfer fee, potentially an attorney. Um, you know, a lot of times they were taken out when the property transferred and that was it. Um, so as Jim said, they, they remain in these deeds, uh, you know, in still in some form today. A large part um, but yeah that is how people if you log on to i think um, the general assembly and look at and other states are doing this all across the country so other states are passing measures similar to this to make it very easy i mean is it just a is it just a form is it just a form you now take to the courthouse to to turn in or do you have to have a new deed prepared uh it's a form and i don't know because of COVID. i don't know whether you have to take it to the courthouse or you can submit it online but but one of those yeah uh depending on you, where you are and what your court's doing but um but beyond that i mean the path forward is i think looking at how zoning has played uh has carried on the legacy of racist covenants right so um, what are the ways in which uh, we're living with R1 or R2 and how, you know, so what, one of the first maps that we've created, we've only done 1903 to 1940, as I said, but one of the first things we wanted to do was show because our city was going through the comprehensive planning process, which is, you know, a 20 year guiding document that will uh, affect everything and everybody. Uh, we wanted to, for the first time, arm them with this history to say, hey, as you're looking at these neighborhoods, here is the history behind them that that pertains to racial segregation and discrimination. Um, and so we did a correlation. We did a one to one of every single property that had single family zoning that uh, also had a racist covenant. Um, and again, we're only you know less than halfway through, but already we had one thousand nine hundred and ninety one parcels that had single family zoning and a racist covenant. So this means that as those covenants come outdated, 1968 Fair Housing Act has passed that. R1 still maintains what those properties uh, use can be. Um, and so who, again, who can afford to live in those homes is people who have been accumulating wealth for the last 50, 60 years. Um, so to see those neighborhoods not change in terms of, gen uh, of generational demographics um, is really where I think planners and, uh, and, and frankly, you know, politicians that are, are making these decisions can start to take that into account and to say, okay, if we're looking at repair, if we're looking at how do we have a most equitable and fair society today, what are the things that need to be implemented? Um, and I don't think there's a one size fits all, right? I mean, different cities are doing different things. Minneapolis just passed, uh, you know, a, a full on, full scale, single family zoning revo uh, revocation, right? And they invested $50 million into affordable housing at the same time. The mapping uh, prejudice project out of Minneapolis was deeply involved in that conversation. Um, so I think those two fit, fit very nicely together. Um, you know, different city, Portland's doing a similar sort of thing. Austin's doing a similar thing. Asheville, North Carolina is doing a similar thing of, of looking at reparative policy. Um, you know, we're in that, we're starting that conversation here. Uh, we're doing a rewrite of our zoning code. We're doing a, a affordable housing strategy and a comprehensive plan. And that is where a lot of this language can start to take form in terms of policy looking forward. That's why. So for the folks who are, are listening to this, Jordy, who are not in Charlottesville, is there kind of a is there a source where all these different mapping groups are working together that it, can people look to see, hey, I live in Baltimore. This is the group that's handling it for my area. Or is there a loose affiliation at all of, of organizations like yours? 
there is an attempt to try to build that, um, you know, a, a collective database, but it is still early uh, in days. Um, you know, there is a, a recent project that Ladale Winling just started and is helping with in um, Chicago to map its racial covenants. St. Louis just started its. Um, there's somebody in Phoenix interested. There's somebody in New Orleans interested. Um, so they're becoming more and more common. This is, I mean, Richard Rothstein, when he wrote The Color of Law, I think he identified racist covenants as the biggest tool of racist segregation that may never be known, right? That the extent, the full extent may never be known because of just how pernicious and how, how unique they are in each city, that every city's records are different. And so how do you, how do you account for all of that? Um, but that being said, I think efforts are being made. And yeah, as you say, a collective sort of site or, or database to have all of these different data sets in cities talk to one another, I think is very much in the works. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, from my perspective, I've just been sitting here on the sidelines, kind of listening and, and learning as much as possible. And it's, I mean, it's, you know, I, I think there's probably a lot of words I can use to describe it. One is just jaw dropping to, to learn this. And, you know, admittedly, I'm just ignorant on the background in a lot of this. So um, we appreciate bringing the table. And I think the other thing that I'll say is we usually, you know, as, as we've had this conversation here um, today, usually kind of wrap with a question that's this podcast is sweat the details. We t talk about hey, what's the detail that you, that you sweat, but I, I'm actually going to, going to throw a little bit of a curveball right here. And, I, you know, I am so um, intrigued with your passion. And so I would love to hear as kind of a wrap to this conversation, a little bit about um, what made you so passionate about this and what drives you kind of, to, you know, uh, yeah, obviously, to, to, well, to get out of bed every day and keep keep pushing through with it. So I'd love to hear about, you know, from a passion perspective, your thoughts on that. Sure. No, thank you for that. Um, I think it's both. I think, uh, you know, as I was trying to think of, you know, what is my sweat, the details, um, it is the same thing. So um, I think remembering that I am not the first to discover this, right? This is not something that I um, am unearthing for the first time, that this is a, I am following in a long history of people who have spoken this truth, of, of tried to challenge uh, these these dynamics that have been put into place, these policies, um, and they haven't been listened to. And so whatever I can do to try to amplify or support that conversation, right, of, of standing on the shoulders of giants, so to speak, um, is what drives me. That, uh, you know, for whatever time period that people are listening and um, that I can grip people with story, that I can grip people with data, uh, I will take to try to push that forward because it's not going to be solved in my generation um, and it is something but I can contribute to it and I can help uh, in whatever way I can um, but just to remember that I'm not alone you know that this um, you know we're close to finishing the logging of all of these deeds and when we do I've got a long list of thank yous I mean we've got over probably 150 people uh, who are, are intimately involved in this project today that are still alive um, and not just the folks that have logged a deed right that goes beyond that so um, but yeah just looking back and saying you know that people challenge this and there's records of that um, all throughout our history in, in America but also here in Charlottesville and that they weren't listened to that they were uh, they were overpowered and that they were uh, they were over you know they, yeah they were not listened to and so what can we do to try to rectify that by paying attention and, and really drawing more attention to this is what drives me and that's the detail I sweat because, <laughs> you know, it'd be easy to, to, you know, get swept up in just the day to day, um, you know, of, of how did this data set talk to this data set, but um, to remember kind of where, where all this came from. Um, that, uh, yeah. 
Well, Jordy, I, I appreciate that. And I also will say as somebody who sat in through some of your training sessions um, in the last year through Zoom and, and just watched the interaction with, you know, 15 to 20 people at a time who are all, you know, sharing the same interest in, in what's best for the for the community. I think the idea and the, the use of crowdsourcing in this is not just how to get the work done. It's how to get the work done and to impact the lives of those who are doing it. And I appreciate the way you and, and everybody at the Jefferson School is, has kind of taken this project in the direction that you all have gone. Because it's, it's an amazing eye-opening. As, as Jonathan said, it's jaw-dropping when you, when you start recognizing what has taken place over, you know, 100 years of, of housing. So thank you for the work and thank you for the, the way in which you've been doing it. Yeah, no, thank you all for, for the interest and for the dedication to this subject and to, to all things housing, because it is, it is something we all have and, and have to grapple with. So, um, yeah, there's no two ways about it. So without that passion from you guys, uh, nobody, would, nobody would be the wiser. So thank you. Awesome. Jordy, thanks, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks.